And we're going to start with uh, two prayers today. Um, the first prayer is a, in light of what has happened in Britain yesterday, just a prayer for peace. And then the second prayer, we'll go right into it, is a prayer for the mission of the church, which sort of sets us up for today's lesson from Acts chapter 13. So let us pray. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your Holy Spirit that all peoples may be gathered together under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father, to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. Amen. And a mission, prayer for the mission of the church. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Acts chapter 13 today. We're going to go ahead and read through the first 12 verses and look at those in close detail, and then we'll move on if we have time. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said to him, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's just read the next verse. Now Paul and his companions had sailed from Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, you will recall that the book of Acts begins some 12 chapters earlier, immediately following the resurrection, or in the days following the resurrection. 
And we're told that over the course of 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And on one of those occasions, the disciples asked him a question. They said, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And when we first started this study, you may recall that we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God was a major theme of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John the Baptist came proclaiming a, a message of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom, he said, had arrived. The kingdom of God. Uh, so now was the time to repent. Uh, Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, would tell parables, and oftentimes those parables had to do with the kingdom. He would say, the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price, or whatever it may be. And of course, you know that Jesus was ultimately executed by the Romans because he claimed to be a king. He claimed to be a king, the king of the Jews. In fact, that was the placard that was placed over his head at the time of his crucifixion. So this notion of a kingdom was a major theme. And it was something that the Jews had been looking forward to for a long time. They were anticipating that when the Messiah came, he would come as a king. But not the kind of king that Jesus turned out to be. They were expecting that when he came, he would be a king, not unlike Caesar. Better than Caesar, of course, but not unlike Caesar. They were looking for the glory days when God would come and restore, through his appointed Messiah, the long-promised, long-anticipated Davidic dynasty. It's going to be a return to the glory days of King David. And that's what they were all looking for. And of course, their hopes and their dreams were dashed to pieces when Jesus was crucified. But once he was resurrected, so were their dreams and their hopes. Oh, well, they killed Jesus, but you can't keep a good man down. He's back. And now that he's back, he's going to do what? He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so you find in the first chapter of Acts, they come to Jesus over the course of those 40 days. And on one occasion, they ask him the question, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I said, you can almost imagine Jesus just sort of slapping his forehead and thinking to himself, how much longer do I have to be with you guys before you understand what I've been talking about? It's not that kind of a kingdom. It's not a kingdom that advances by force of arms or by armies. This is a kingdom that advances soul by souls in, in, in the lives of men and women. It brings the nations to their knees by peaceful means, but they didn't get that. And so instead, Jesus says to them, he says, listen, fellows, it's not for you to know the times or the places, but here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you are going to be filled with power. We said that the Greek word for power is dynamis, from which we get the word dynamite. You're going to be filled with an explosive power, and you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. Well, that's where we are here in Acts chapter 13. We're seeing the final stage of that prophecy coming to fulfillment. And that means that Acts chapter 13 really is a major turning point here in the book of Acts. We said that for the first part of the book, almost everything has been focused on the ministry of Peter. Peter is going to fade out of the picture at this point, and another man is going to come to the forefront, and that, of course, is the apostle Paul. You can see how this threefold prophecy has unfolded in the book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses first where? In Jerusalem. Acts chapters 1 through 7 pretty much deals with the apostles and their ministry there in Jerusalem where they were living. 
But then we said that the gospel began to expand beyond Jerusalem into Judea to the south, and we saw that, didn't we? Uh, we saw the um, deacon, the early deacon, Philip, take the gospel down on that road going south, that desert road. But we've also seen the gospel go up into Samaria because Philip had gone to Samaria before he went south. And furthermore, we've seen Peter go up into Samaria. He'd gone up to Joppa, and he'd stayed at the home of Simon the Tanner, and he'd proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius. And so we've seen the gospel expand to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, but now, beginning in Acts chapter 13, we're going to see that third stage fulfilled. We're going to see the gospel now go to the ends of the earth. And it's very significant for you and for me because if it had not gone to the ends of the earth, if this final stage of Jesus' prophecy foretold in Acts chapter 1 had never been fulfilled, you and I probably would not be here. We are here in large measure because of what happens here in Acts chapter 13. So in many respects, this is our chapter. Acts chapter 13. This church in Antioch, and last week we took a look at this church in Antioch, and we said that this was a church that what? They were called Christians first here. And it was this church, where they were first called Christians, that sent out the first missionaries to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So I say that Acts chapter 13 is really the beginning of the missionary era. Now somebody might say, well, the beginning of the missionary era really started with Jesus' great commission when he said to them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And in some respects that's true. But up to this point you'll notice that the early Christians only shared their faith in a sort of reactive way as the opportunities presented themselves. They were reactive. So as Peter and John are on their way up to the temple and they encounter that man who is begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, they realize they had an opportunity. They said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we have to you we'll give. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. The man felt a strengthening in his ankles. He was healed. He began to leap and praise God and followed them into the temple. A crowd gathered. Peter realized he had a crowd and he did what? Preached a sermon. So he shared the gospel, but he never got up in the morning and said to John, let's go on up to the temple today. I got an idea. I got a plan for the day. Let, let's go up to the temple today and we'll find somebody who needs to be healed. We'll heal them. That'll cause a commotion and we can preach the gospel. That was never part of their plan. They shared the gospel as opportunities presented themselves. At least they were open to the fact that God would present them with opportunities. And we said that that's true for us. There are all kinds of opportunities that are presented to us on a daily basis. We just need to have the eyes to see them. But nevertheless, they were what? Reacting. They were not proactive. Until you get to Acts chapter 13, where for the first time we begin to see these people, the church in Antioch, send people out, be proactive to target areas where the gospel has never been preached. They're not waiting for opportunities to come to them. They are going out seeking opportunities. So that's why I say this is really the beginning of the missionary era in the proper sense. It's the beginning of the missionary era. word mission or missionary comes from the Latin, mito, miter, miso, misum, and it means sent one. One who is sent out. That's what a missionary is. A missionary is one who is sent out. 
And this is the first time that we see a church actually sending people out. You remember earlier in Acts chapter 2, we're told that the church did what? Cared for one another. We said that it was, for the most part, what we would call in-reach. Now keep your finger there in Acts 12 and turn to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Familiar verses, you know them. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44. We read this, And they, that is the early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What were they doing? Well, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The church was gathered and it was focusing on the apostles' teaching. That is what we would call the scriptures today. To the apostles' teaching, to what? To the breaking of bread. So they were concerned with worship. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread. To the prayers. They were saying their prayers. And what else? We're told they had everything in common. Which is to say they cared for one another. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they were doing good things, but they weren't going out. They were simply living in such an extraordinary way that people on the outside took notice and were even provoked to jealousy and said, I want to be a part of that kind of a community. That, that's what I want to do. I want to be a part of those people. Now, I'm going to uh, Sumter tomorrow. Uh, to teach as part of the Lenten series at Church of the Holy Comforter in Sumter. And I've been asked to speak on the subject of the church as family. And so I've been thinking for the last couple of days, what does it mean really to be a family? Well, if you look in Webster's Dictionary, the word family basically means of a common stock or a common ancestry. That's what a family is. Well, not really. I would argue that you can have a common stock, a common ancestry, and still really not be a family. What does it mean to be a family? To be a real family, I think, is to have a people and it's to have a place. When we were in Ireland um, last summer, we were visiting a place called the Rock of Cashel. And while we were there, there was a young man who was proposing marriage to his girlfriend. And um, the Irish guy that we were with turned to me and he said, do you know how an Irishman proposes marriage? And I said, no, how does he do it? He gets down on one knee and he says, darling, would you do me the honor of being buried with my people? <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, that's how Charlestonians probably <laughs> propose marriage as well. Would you do me the honor of being buried with my people? It's to have a place, and it's to have a people. That's what it means to be a family. And that's what they saw there in that early church, didn't they? They saw a people and a place, and those on the outside said, I want a people, and I want to be a place, and I want to be a part of that. And that's how the church grew in those early days. But they weren't being proactive. They weren't going out. They were caring for those within the community. Everything changes here. 
Now, what I want us to ask this morning, and what I want us to take a look at, I guess it's this afternoon now, is what kind of a church goes from being reactive to being proactive? This was obviously a church here in Acts chapter 13 that changed the world. As I said, we're here today because of them. And so we have to ask ourselves, what kind of a church does that? What are the marks, what are the characteristics of a church that literally changes the world? When I was the rector at St. Helena's in Buford, that was our vision, to be like the church in Antioch, to be a church that changed the world. So what were the marks, the characteristics of this church? I want to suggest to you a number of things. We learn a great deal just from these first few verses. Let's look at the first three again. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. What kind of a church changes the world? Well, the first thing we learned about this church which changed the world was that it was a church that placed a high priority on teaching, on preaching and teaching. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing that is mentioned about this church is that there were prophets and teachers. And I want you to notice that both of those terms are plural. Now, what's a prophet? We've already talked about a prophet in here. A prophet is not necessarily somebody who foretells the future. When we think of a prophet, we think of somebody who has the ability to foretell the future. A Nostradamus, a Gene Dixon, something like that. But that is not what a prophet is at all. A prophet is basically someone who speaks on behalf of God. We would call that person a preacher. So translate the word prophet here as preacher. There were, in the church at Antioch, preachers and teachers, both of them. And here's what's interesting, plural. Some translations even have a colon at this point. Preachers and teachers, or prophets and teachers, colon, and then it goes on to list them. I submit to you that a church that will change the world is a church that is a well taught church. It places a priority on preaching and teaching first and foremost. And you say, well, why is that important? I suggest to you it's important because this is what Jesus said was important. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Now, you know, of course, Mark begins in a different way than Matthew and Luke. There's no genealogy here. It begins with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. Now, in Mark chapter 1, we have the story of Jesus uh, going to Capernaum. And uh, while he is there, he heals, we're told, Simon's mother-in-law. The story is found in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. 
and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here's the scene. Jesus goes into this town. He heals Simon's mother-in-law of this fever, evidently a, a grave situation. And we're told that the word got out, and before you knew it, everybody was there. The critical thing to remember here is that it's sundown. Now, this is in an age before electricity. You couldn't just turn on the lights. People had to use oil lamps, and oil was expensive. These were small lamps, and furthermore, there were no street lights. So when it got dark, people went to bed. They didn't stay up. They were not night owls. Everybody went to bed. And furthermore, it was an agrarian culture. You had to get up early in the morning. So it's sundown. Jesus is healing people. When it gets dark, everybody goes home. Now, those who haven't been healed, what do you think they're going to do the next day? They're coming back. And furthermore, they're probably telling other people about this. And we know that because of what happens next. Take a look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Translate, what are you doing out here? Jesus says, well, I'm praying. And they said, well, no time for prayer. Everybody's looking for you. You need to get back down, down to town, and get on with what you came to do. Which in their mind was what? Miracles. Healing, yes, but miracles in general. And I want you to know how Jesus responds. And he said to them, verse 38, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Isn't it interesting? That is why I came out. Well, didn't you come out to heal people? I do heal people, but that's not why I came out. Did you ever notice that so often when Jesus would perform a great miracle, particularly a healing miracle or raising somebody from the dead, he would strictly tell people, now don't talk about this. Did you ever notice that? How many of you have always found that rather odd? That Jesus says, now don't tell anybody about it. If you saw somebody raised from the dead, how many of you would not be able to talk about it? Anybody out there? And you'll notice that Jesus would say, don't talk about it. What did they do? They went on and told everybody about it. Why do you think that Jesus was telling people, don't talk about this? Well, there are two reasons. One is that his hour had not yet come. That's a theme that you see particularly in the Gospel of John, where Jesus talks about the hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. For example, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, when they run out of wine, and his mother comes up to him and, he says, and she says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus turns and says, well, what does that have to do with me? And I love the way Mary responds. A great Jewish mother. She simply turns to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. And he'll do whatever I tell him. And Jesus, good son that he is, obedient to the fifth commandment, does exactly as he's told to do. But he makes it very clear. He says, my time, my hour has not yet come. And you see that throughout the Gospel of John. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In fact, it does not come until we're told a group of Greeks who'd come up to the festival, come to Jesus, and actually come to Philip, and they said, we would see Jesus. And by the way, that Philip is not Philip the deacon. 
It's the Philip for whom this church is named, Philip the Apostle. They come to Philip and they said, we would see Jesus, and Jesus says, my hour has come. So part of the reason is his hour to be revealed as the Messiah hadn't come, and that's why he's telling people, you know, don't make a big fuss about this. The time will come. But the other reason I think is absolutely correct, and that is because we have a tendency as human beings to get so focused on the miraculous that we miss the message and we miss the man. Now, why is it that the summer blockbuster movies are always special effects movies? Now, they're not going to win an Academy Award, but they're going to make a lot of money. Some years ago, they came out with a movie called Twister. Anybody ever seen Twister? It stars Helen Hunt. And the whole movie is, is about a group of people who chase tornadoes. Now, it's, it's not the only redeeming thing in the movie, really, uh, aside from Helen Hunt, are the special effects. I remember when the movie um, Titanic came out. I wanted to see that movie so bad. I kept saying to my wife, we, we need to go see Titanic. We need... And she said, she just didn't want to go. I said, everybody's seen Titanic. I don't want to go. I said, they say it's fantastic. I don't want to go. I said, why don't you want to go? She says, we know how it ends. <laughs> and, and, and we do. It does not end well. Of course, I wanted to go what? The special effects were extraordinary. They were amazing. You could hear the creaking of that vessel as it was going down and just sent shivers up your spine. We are awed by the miraculous, by the spectacular. But let me tell you, every person that Jesus healed died. I've always thought that Lazarus is one of the most pitiful people in all of Scripture. Jesus raised him from the dead and he had to die again. It's bad enough to go once, let alone to go twice. What Jesus wanted people to focus on was the man, what he had come to do. You know, Jesus' teaching, as important as they are, were not the focus. It's what the man came to do. It's what he did, not merely what he said that mattered. It was the man, not the miracles, but also his message, a message that pointed to him and to his redemptive work. So that was the focus. Now, going back to Acts chapter 13 for a moment, I think that should be the focus as well. Every church that is a strong church, and when I say strong, I don't mean just large in terms of numbers. It is possible in this entertainment age, and that's what we're living in, ladies and gentlemen. We are living in an entertainment age. It is possible to get people to come out in droves. Now, you may not get people to come out in droves for a lecture on foreign policy. Although, let me tell you, given what's going on in Korea, given what's going on with Russia and other parts of the world, foreign policy should be a concern to us. But how many people do you think you're going to get to come out if you just have a, a lecture on foreign policy? Probably not too many. How many are going to come out for a college football game? Thousands! Thousands! And to some degree, and there's nothing wrong with this, but we do live in an entertainment culture. And so we are awed by the spectacular. We love to be entertained. But there is a danger in that. There is a danger in that. So teaching, teaching is of the utmost importance. It may not bring out huge numbers of people, but it is teaching. 
It is the word of God that makes the people of God strong and equips them for the work to which God has called them. And it was the chosen vocation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it was good enough for him, it should be good enough for us. So the church that changes the world is first and foremost a teaching and preaching church. It places a priority on that. Places a priority on that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is perhaps one of the greatest preachers, maybe the greatest preacher in Britain in the 19th century, once complained. He said, apathy, apathy, everywhere there is apathy. He said, in the minds of most people, a sermon is a sermon no matter what the topic, only the shorter it is, the better it is. He was writing that in the 1880s. Apathy, apathy. John Stott once said, you know what sermonettes make? Sermonettes make Christianettes. So preaching and teaching, it was a priority. And we're told that there was more than one preacher, there was more than one teacher. I think there's a reason for that as well. It can't always do that in a small church. Sometimes you've only got one preacher. But I think in a larger church it's important to have a rotation. You'll notice that I'm a teacher but I share the pulpit ministry, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, it guards against the cult of the personality. Where people come out for that one individual, oh, we love him, he's just great. And there's a danger in entertainment there. There's also a danger in putting that person on a pedestal, because sooner or later, what? They're probably going to fall off. Second reason is it allows other people to exercise their gifts as well. I remember when I first came to St. Helena's, um, the rector down there was a great guy, Frank Limehouse. Some of you may have met Frank Limehouse or know him. He comes from Orangeburg, South Carolina. Uh, but I remember when Frank got there, he had one lady, and she was just, whew, she was just, you know, every, every church has got one, and <laughs> she was it for us. And um, I don't see the lady I'm talking about in this room today, but at any rate, this lady was difficult, and, and she just could not stand Frank. She just couldn't stand him. And she said, all we ever talked about was the cross and Jesus' blood. And she said, I was so tired of hearing about that. And so she was really excited when she heard a new assistant was coming. Oh, it's great. And where's he from? Oh, he's a Yankee. Oh, even better, she thought. You know, this will be great. And I preached my first sermon, and Monday morning, she was standing at my door, and I opened the door, and she said, I heard you preach yesterday. I said, well, yeah. and um, she said, I was so looking forward to it. And she's saying all these things, and my head by this point is growing exponentially, and she said, my husband refused to come because he can't stand the rector, and he said, when you, he said to me, when you go to church, listen to the new assistant and come home and give me a report. She said, so I went home and I gave him a report. And I said, yes, yes. <laughs> What'd you tell him? She said, I told him, same sermon, different accent. <laughs> same sermon, different accent. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But that's what makes the church strong. An emphasis upon preaching and teaching and allowing other people to do it as well. There are times when I will preach and a message that I proclaim will resonate in the heart of some segments of the congregation. 
There are other times when Mark Bouton will climb into the pulpit and he will preach. And because of his experiences, because of his style, he will resonate with another section of the congregation. The key is, same message, even if it's a different accent. That's part of what makes a church strong. And we can see that as a characteristic of this church here in Acts chapter 13. It was a church that placed a high priority on preaching and teaching. I skipped over one. You'll see that it was a well-established church as well. Uh, we're told that now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, and it lists some of them, and one of the people that it mentions is Lucius of Cyrene. Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 11 to verse 20, you'll discover that it was people from Cyrene who went and helped to establish this church in Antioch. And while it hadn't been around for 300 years like St. Philip's, it nevertheless, as far as the early Christian era was concerned, had been around for some time, to such a degree that these people were called Christians first, where? Here at Antioch. So this was not some sort of fly-by-night church. It had been here. It had been growing. It was a going concern. Well, that's something St. Philip's has going for it, ladies and gentlemen. It's been here for a while. There is a weight to it. History is important. It's a value. It's of significance. It reminds us, at the very least, that we are not doing this on our own. That we are building on a foundation that has already been laid by other people. If you were here for my annual address some weeks ago, this is one of the things that I talked about. It's one of the things that I am reminded of every time I walk through the cemetery. That my job is to build on the foundation that has already been laid. When I graduated from Virginia Seminary, uh, the dean addressed the student body. And um, this is what he said. He said, just remember this as you go out, young deacons, soon to be ordained priests. He said, just remember this. Wherever you go, there have already been Christians there. Your job is to make sure there are Christians when you leave. And that was good advice. Because sometimes we think we're going to go out there and smite the world right. And we have to remember that there have been others there before us. The Apostle Paul said that I lay a foundation, but other people of what? Build upon it. If there are other people that have gone before us, our job is to simply make sure there are believers when we leave. To build on the foundation that has been laid. This was a well-established church. It was a well-taught church. Here's something else about it. It was a well-integrated church. Now, how do we know that? In large measure, because of the names of the preachers and teachers. Let me tell you, first century Greco-Roman society was not well integrated. It had lots of people, but it also had what the Apostle Paul in Ephesians called lots of walls, dividing walls of hostility. The Greeks looked down on the Romans as upstarts. The Romans looked down on the Greeks as has-beens. Both groups looked down on the Jews, and the Jews looked down on everybody. And there were these dividing walls of hostility that existed in first century Greco-Roman society. Greeks had nothing to do with Romans. Romans generally, as I said, wanted to subdue Greek culture. Mimic it, copy it perhaps, but subdue it nevertheless. Impose their order upon it. 
And the Jews, of course, didn't want to have anything to do with anyone. They didn't even like to have anything to do with Gentiles or even Samaritans. Their whole mandate in the Old Testament was what? Come out from among them and be ye separate. So there were all these dividing walls of hostility that existed in the ancient world. But what's so fascinating about this church here in Antioch is that we see those dividing walls of hostility have come down. They have come down. Turn, before we look at them, turn for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to notice something here. It's a great text. Ephesians is a little book, really, about the church. And look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, he's writing to a Gentile community. But here's what he says. He says, therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time, what? Separated from Christ. You were called uncircumcised by the circumcised. What does that mean? You were called unclean by those who regard themselves as clean. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not a people. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus, by his death, has what? torn down the dividing walls of hostility. In other words, what unites you, Jesus Christ, is far greater than anything that divides you. And we have no more powerful picture of a church where the dividing walls of hostility have come crashing down than here in Acts chapter 13. And let me show you what I mean. Now, there were in the church at Antioch preachers and teachers... And then they're listed. Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? We've already encountered Barnabas up to this point. He is that man who what? He was a son of encouragement. He was that man who was generous with the church in Jerusalem by selling that plot of land. But we're told that he was not from Jerusalem. That's what made him an encouragement. That's what made him so remarkable, is that he gave money to help a church, and he wasn't even from Jerusalem. We're told that he was a Levite from Cyprus, which meant that he was a Jew of the diaspora. He was a Jew living in Gentile territory. That's the first preacher here. He's a Jew, but he's not a Jew of Jerusalem. Some people would say he was from off. exactly it. That's exactly it. He may be a Jew, but he's not from 
here. He's not from Jerusalem. But there he is. He's Barnabas. The second man that we encounter is Simeon, who is called Niger. The word Niger means black. Presumably this was a what? A black man. Now this is the first century world. There were huge dividing walls of hostility. This was much more than anything you read in Jane Austen. Between those who were landed gentry, those who were aristocracy, and those who were just laborer class people. No, this man was a black man. And he's laboring alongside what? A Jewish man. We're told there was Lucius of Cyrene. Well, that word Lucius, that name Lucius, is a Latin name. Presumably, this man was a Gentile. So in just those first three names, what do we have? We have a Jewish man, not from Jerusalem. We have a black man, and we have a Gentile. And those three people normally would have had absolutely nothing to do with one another. And here they are, not only in the same church, but what? Involved in leadership in the same church, preaching and teaching. Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? Well, we talked a little bit about all of those Herods last week. This is Herod Antipas. This is the same Herod who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. And he's the same one that Jesus would stand trial before, before he went to Pontius Pilate. This is a powerful man. This is part of that great ruling dynasty of Judea, the Herods. And look at what a different course they took. We're told that he was raised a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. He was a member of the court. He was a high-ranking individual. He was aristocracy. He was with the ruling powers. And yet these two men went very different directions, didn't they? One became a follower of Jesus Christ. One a persecutor of the church. Just goes to remind us, my friends, that when it comes to becoming, when it comes to being a member of the family of God, it is not a matter of place, it is a matter of grace. You can be raised in the church your entire life and never hear the gospel. Not because it's not preached, just because you haven't heard it. It's one thing to listen, it's another thing to hear. One man heard the gospel, another man turned against it. But what's interesting about him is that he was a powerful, influential, wealthy individual. So we're seeing that we've got commoners here, we've got Jews, we've got Gentiles, we've got black, we've got white, we've got high-ranking, we've got low-ranking. And we've got what? We've got somebody who's been... Born again. This fellow by the name of Saul. This man who had one of those born again experiences there on the road to Damascus. A man who had been a persecutor of the church. And now has been transformed and has become its eloquent spokesman. Let me tell you something. That is a motley crew. Isn't it? That's a motley crew of individuals. But I want you to know that's the church that changes the world. What is the church going to look like in heaven? 
every tribe, language, people, and nation. The church needs to get used to it on earth because that's the way it's going to be in heaven. And if we want to be a church that changes the world, we need to be that kind of a church. A church should never be monolithic. It should never be PLU, people like us. It needs to be all kinds, all sorts of people, because that is what makes the church strong. So we can see here that it is an integrated church. It's a multi-staff church, as we are going to see. Uh, there were many preachers, there were many teachers, yes, but even when they sent off the missionaries, they always sent them off what? Two by two. They never went by themselves. Jesus sent off his disciples two by two. Because, number one, we need to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And furthermore, the church is a body. It is the body of Christ. And as Paul writes, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. The body needs every part working in concert in order to be strong. And so we will see that this is a multi-staffed church. Now you say, well, some churches can't afford lots of staff. We're not talking about paid staff. We're talking about lots of people engaged in ministry. You know, when you ask people, well, who are the ministers of the church? If somebody comes up to you and asks you the question on the street, and you go to St. Philip's and they say, well, who are the ministers of the church? How many of you are going to start to rattle off, well, we got this new guy named Jeff Miller, and he brought his friend named Andrew O'Dell, and then we've got Mark Bouton, and we've got Hank, and then you go through everybody else. When most people think of the ministers of the church, what do they think of? People who wear these. People who wear the collars. But what does the prayer book say? How many of you know the catechism? The catechism asks this question. Who are the ministers of the church? What does the catechism say? The ministers of the church are... Go ahead, answer, you were right. And what else? Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. What I find fascinating is that when it asks who are the ministers of the church, it says lay persons first. Then bishops, priests, and deacons. How many of you have been baptized? You're ordained. <laughs> if you've been baptized, you have been ordained to share the gospel. What is the ministry of the lay person? To share the gospel. If you don't believe me, read the catechism. It's in the Book of Common Prayer. It's there. Who are the ministers of the church? Lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. It is not the responsibility of the clergy only to do this task. There are gifts that lay people have that clergy do not. What is the primary responsibility of the clergy? Anybody know? It is to preach and to teach. And what is the responsibility of the layperson? To do everything else. Now, that may be a, a revelation to people, but that's biblical. Uh, this is one of the things that, that is unique about the Anglican ordination service. You know, in 1896, the Pope declared Anglican orders, that is, ordained orders, invalid. Now, what's interesting is that nobody had contested the fact that Anglican orders were invalid. 
even at the time of the Reformation. Nobody had contested it. And suddenly, in 1896, the Pope comes out with a papal bull and declares that Anglican orders, Anglican bishops and priests, are invalid. Well, that was a shock to the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York. And so they responded, and they wanted to know why. Why was it that you said that our orders are now invalid. You haven't contested that since the 16th century, and here we are 300 years later, and all of a sudden we're invalid. Why are we suddenly invalid? And here's what the Pope said. He said, because you changed the notion of the priesthood. You change the ordinal. If you go to a Roman Catholic ordination service, and you go to an Anglican ordination service, you will notice that the services are almost identical. But there are a few minor changes and one significant change. When the Roman Catholic priest is ordained, do we have any Roman Catholics out there, by the way? Okay, we're safe right now. So, <laughs> when the Roman Catholic priest is ordained, after the bishop lays hands on him and ordains him, he then hands him symbols of his office, his priestly office. And do you know what he's given? A paten and a chalice. Because the primary responsibility of the Roman Catholic priest is to celebrate the Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass. And according to Roman Catholic theology, every time the Mass is celebrated, Jesus is sacrificed again. So that is the primary responsibility of the Roman Catholic priest, to celebrate the Mass. When an Anglican priest is ordained, the bishop lays hands on him and then hands him a symbol of his office. And what does he get? The prayer book only requires one thing. Now, in some ordination services, they give them a whole lot of things. But the prayer book only requires one thing for an Anglican ordination service. A Bible. Which means that the primary responsibility of the Anglican priest is to preach and to teach. That is his primary responsibility. Now you say, well, what about the sacraments? The sacraments flow out of the Word. So yes, he has a responsibility to celebrate the sacraments, but the sacraments flow out of the Word. Incidentally, you'll notice, and this is still to some degree true here at St. Philip's, but how many of you were raised in the Episcopal Church where you only did communion once a month? Many of you. It was a word-centered church, and the sacraments came once a month, absolutely, because they were given by Christ, the dominical sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the focus was on what? The preaching and the teaching. Did you ever notice when you come into St. Philip's that they have a high pulpit? Look at the colonial churches. High pulpit. First time I climbed into that pulpit, I felt like I needed oxygen up there. I mean, it's a, it's a weird feeling. Go to St. Michael's. What's the most prominent thing in the church? The pulpit. Preaching as a priority, you see, as a big part of that. So who does everything else? The lay people. They're all called to be ministers. And somewhere along the line, clericalism arose, and we lost sight of that. When you see somebody in need, who should be praying for them? You should be praying for them. You've got that responsibility. And you've got that gift. Now some people say, well, I can't pray like you. Well, you don't have to pray like Thomas Cranmer. God is concerned with what comes out of your heart. 
God is far more concerned about a prayer that is genuine than one that is simply eloquent. As a matter of fact, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for all of their eloquence, standing on the street corners to be heard of men. So we see in this church, it was a church that had many people making the work light. Something else we notice here, it was a worshiping church. We're told that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Worshiping and praying. Worship was a priority. Now, let me ask you this question. The word worship, what does it mean? Some of you know because you've heard me before on this. It's good. You're absolutely right. It comes from the Old English worship. If you had lived in the time of Chaucer, the word worship didn't exist. It was worth-ship. Worth-ship. So to worship means to apply worth or value to someone or something. All right? Sometimes the Lord Mayor of London is called his worship or his worship. That's where it comes from, to apply worth or value to someone or something, which helps us to understand what worship, what church services really ought to be all about. You know, many people, when you ask them, why do you go to church, they will say something like this, well, I go to church so that I can get my batteries recharged. I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me. I love to go to church because just it gets my batteries recharged and I'm ready to hit the road running on Monday morning. How many, how many of you feel that way? Some people feel drained after they come out of church, unfortunately. In some places, that's true. But hopefully, that's the way it is. And you do feel like you've been encouraged and you're ready to go out and you're ready to, you know, take the world. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we call it a recessional, but it really isn't. I'll probably change this, by the way, in the bulletin. I haven't changed much, but you might see a little change where we no longer call it a recessional. Because a recessional implies what? A retreat. We process into church. We process out of church. What are the final words? Go ye to all the world. But let us go forth in the name of Christ. Let us go forth rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. We process out into the world. Out of the church, but into the world. And that's the way it should be. So yes, church is about getting your batteries recharged, but that's not the primary purpose of church. Because if we are there to apply worth and value to someone or something, who then is the primary focus? God. You know, so many times we go to church and we think, here we are, we're sitting out there in the congregation, and we are there, and, and there is like a play. And there are actors, and they come out in costumes, and uh, those costumes change depending upon the season of the year, and they get up there, and, and they sing, and so we're entertained over here, and then this guy gets up there, and he gives some sort of oration, and we're entertained over there, and we come out, and we're recharged. Here's a revelation for you. The congregation is not the audience. What does the word liturgy mean? Anybody know what the word liturgy means? You've all been raised Episcopalians, and you don't know what liturgy means. We're a liturgical church. What does the word liturgy mean? It means the work of the people. Read that, mark that, learn that, inwardly digest that. Liturgy means the work of the people, which means who's the audience, and who are the actors? God's the audience. 
We are the actors. That's why we are a liturgical church. We don't sit there. How many times in Protestant churches have I seen this happen? And I was raised in a Protestant church. I shall not tell you which one. Because you'll go home and tell your friend down there at First Scots. I mean, no, I'm just sorry. Uh, <laughs> but you know what happens? You come in and you say, well, how was church today? Oh, man. That, was the, that sermon was so long I thought he'd never end. I felt like I was on a bad carnival ride and he just didn't know how to get off. And sometimes we feel that way. And so we say, I don't even know why I went. Well, it's not all about you. There's, there's something to think about. It's not all about you. It's about God. You don't go for you. You go for Him. If you derive a benefit from it, praise the Lord. But this is why it's called the Lord's Day. <laughs> because it's His Day. And we apply worth and value to Him. And we are engaged in the work of what? Worshiping. We are engaged in the process of worshiping. Applying worth and value to Him. And if the preacher happens to be on that day, praise the Lord. If the choir is singing on key, hallelujah. But where two or three are gathered, He is there in the midst. And if He is there, that's what matters the most. The whole purpose of worship is to lift up God. So worship should be a priority for God's people. Where we ever got into our mind as Christians, we can understand an unbelieving world, but wherever we got into our mind as Christians, that worship was an option for us, or a matter of convenience, something went wrong. Every time we go on vacation, Sunday rolls around, and we go in and break our kids up, and we say, let's go. Oh, Dad, we're on vacation. I said, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Get up. We're going to church because he's there. This was a church that was worshiping, saying their prayers. And one more thing, this was a church that was fasting. They were fasting. What does it mean to fast? Some people think you're so busy you miss lunch. That's fasting. No, it's not. Fasting is when we decide to refrain from food so we can concentrate on spiritual matters. And it generally happens when we are seeking God's will. Lord, direct me. Show me. Show me whether by an open door or by a closed door, but direct my steps. Show me where you want me to go. And it was to this church, this well-taught, well-preached-to church that made preaching and teaching a priority. Let me tell you something, congregation, you have my permission to hold the clergy's feet to the fire when it comes to this, to preaching and teaching. You have a right to that. You have a right to that. It was an integrated church. It had all kinds of people. It was a multi-staff church, many people doing the work. It was a worshiping church. God was the center of it all. And everything that they did, it was not about performance. It was not about entertainment. It was about lifting him up that he might draw all men to himself. And this was a church that was seeking God's will. Lord, take us. Take my life, as the old hymn says, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. And to this church, God spoke by his Holy Spirit. And he said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. And they set them apart and sent them out. And ladies and gentlemen, the world has never been the same since. What is St. Philip's going to be in the future? What is St. Michael's going to be in the future? Are these going to be two churches? They've been around for a long time, you know. They're well established. But here's the question. Are they going to be churches that change the world? Well, if they are, then they need to look more and more like this church in Acts chapter 13. Here's the question for all of us. What do we need to do in order to make sure that happens? Where are there gaps? Where do we need to be more like the church in Antioch so that God speaks to us and uses us to bring the nations to their knees? That's a question for each and every one of us to answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the church in Antioch. We are here as believers because of it. We pray that by your mercy and by your grace, you would transform this congregation, St. Philip's, into that kind of a church. A church that is well integrated with all kinds of people black, white, high estate, low estate, educated, ignorant, whatever it may be. But what unites us, the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, is far greater than anything that divides us. Make us a church that seeks in its worship to lift up Jesus Christ, that he might draw all men to himself. Grant that we may make preaching and teaching a priority. Grant that we may bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Grant that we might be a church that is seeking your will. And then in your time, speak to us and send us out to change the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you. I am tea room brain. And that's all that I can think of. I understand. I understand.